I'm Sean Delaney, and you're listening to What Got You There. What Got You There is a must-follow for entrepreneurs, creatives, high achievers, and change makers. Each week, I sit down with some of the world's most influential people and focus on the journey behind their success. We uncover the strategy, tactics, and routines that help them get there. Now it's your journey, so it's time to learn what's going to get you there. What got you there with Sean Delaney? Uh, what got you there with Sean Delaney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with got you, got you? At every meeting, I want it to be right at the end of the meeting, not at the beginning of the meeting. And there's a big difference there in terms of how you run your discussions to make sure you're getting all the facts and opinions, that people don't know exactly where you're coming from, from the beginning, so that you really do engage everybody and get the full color of whatever it is that you're dealing with. And the way I like to describe it is you're trying to build a mosaic. It's not as pretty as a painting. It's more like you're trying to fit in all these pieces to figure out, okay, what's the right decision here? What got you there with David Cote was formerly chairman and CEO of industrial giant Honeywell and is currently executive chairman of Vertive Holdings Co. During 16 years as CEO and or chairman of Honeywell, he grew the company's market capitalization from around $20 billion to nearly $120 billion, delivering returns of 800% and beating the S&P by nearly two and a half times. Cote was named CEO of the Year by Chief Executive Magazine in 2013 and was recognized as one of the world's best CEOs by Barron's for five straight years, 2013 to 2017. On this episode, Dave shares his story of being the first in his family to graduate high school to becoming one of the best CEOs in the world. The life lessons Dave shares are the ones that you will not want to miss. Making change transpire. That's the mission behind the most amazing tasting protein bar brand taking the nutrition industry by storm. That brand, they're MCT Co. And they make the most delicious, keto-friendly, all-natural collagen protein bars. If you're obsessed with the quality of food going into your body like I am, then head out and pick up these amazing bars jammed with 10 grams of collagen protein. They only have two to three net carbs, no added sugar, and loaded with high-quality MCT oil for the healthy fats from coconuts. Whether you're busy running the kids around from activity to activity, a professional athlete, or just someone looking for a great-tasting convenience snack, do yourself a favor. Head to mctco.com and use code WGYT for 20% off your order. Dave, welcome to What Got You There. How are you doing today? Actually, quite well. Things are, things are pretty nice down here in Atlanta. Can't beat that. A good start to the day. And I'm hoping we can start this conversation with a story about a, name, a man named Gene Savage and how something he <laughs> did impacted you. Wow. Okay, well, you've done your research. Yeah. Um, okay, so if I go back to graduating from high school, uh, I was, uh, I'd say I was very ambitious, but also uh, totally directionless. But no idea. I knew I wanted to accomplish something, but I had no idea what or how. And I had no money. So I wasn't sure what I would even be good at doing. I just knew that I wanted to accomplish something. Well, that ambition combined with no direction just caused me to just flounder everywhere. I tried being a 
I, I quit school instead of going to college. I, I quit school for a year coming out of high school and uh, tried to be a mechanic, tried to be a carpenter's apprentice. I enlisted in the Navy and at the day before I was supposed to swear in, I backed out and I thought, God, the only thing I seem to be good at is school. So I guess I just better get back to school. So it was like August or so. And I called the admissions office and just said, hey, uh, geez, you know, you let me in last year. I uh, couldn't make it. I'd like to get in for this year. And they said, no, we're not going to do that. If you haven't applied, uh, you're past the application date already. <clears throat> so you can apply now and come in in the winter semester in January and uh, do it then. And I thought, God, this that sucks because that's I got to wait four more months to do something that I was all they'd already accepted me for. And the unfairness of it just uh, totally bothered me, at least in my perceived unfairness. So um, I drove to the school and I went to the director of admissions office because that was the address that was on the uh, stuff that I'd had from UNH and I thought, okay, I'll give it a university in New Hampshire and I'll uh, give it a try. So I went to the admissions office and uh, introduced myself. And of course I had uh, jeans, uh, flannel shirt, the long hair that was uh, in vogue then and uh, asked to see the director of admissions. And she said, well, do you have an appointment? No, I don't. Uh, well, he can't see you. He's busy all day. And I said, no problem. I'll just sit here and wait. And He's bound to have a moment here or there, or even when he walks out to his car I'll, at the end of the day. And this was like, I don't know, noon, one o'clock, something like that. So I sat there for about two hours and she came over and said, uh, you know, I told you, he, he, you don't have an appointment. He can't see you. And I said, that's OK. I, I'm, I got plenty of time. I brought a book so I can wait and I'll just catch him when he leaves. She finally said, you're not leaving, are you? I said, no, 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 really. I'm not, not trying to be rude. I'm just, uh, I just want to catch him. So I'm uh, 19 years old at this point, pulling this stuff. And she finally said, oh, came over and said, okay, uh, he'll see you. So I went in, told my story. And he said, geez, uh, uh, you didn't apply, uh, didn't apply in time. However, I understand your point. And if you're able to get your application into me by Friday, this was like a Tuesday or something, and it qualifies, I'll let you in. So I hustled home, filled it out, got it into him uh, by Friday, and he accepted me. And that guy's name was Gene Savage. And I like to say a couple of things. One is, if he hadn't let me in, God knows what other stupid thing I would have done in the four months that I had available to me to just hang around because I was not the hang around type. I'd have done something saying, okay, I got to get started. So who knows what stupid thing I would have done. But the second thing was uh, I've said in the arrogance of youth, I never thanked him for it. I kind of just viewed it as, well, you know, he did his job. I was accepted last year. I should be accepted this year. And it was only as I got a little older, I realized it would have been very easy for him to just follow the rules, which is one of the things uh, a lot of people like to hide behind. Uh, there's a process or there are rules and it makes it very easy for them to exercise their little bit of power over you and not do whatever the right thing would be to do. 
he did the right thing. And it was only about, um, I'd say about 20, no, but I take it back, more like 35 years later, I finally was able to track him down. And I happened to be at UNH and I was telling some professors this story. And they said, oh, well, that fellow's name would have been Gene Savage because he was the director of admissions for a long time. So I uh, tracked him down uh, via the phone uh, just to say thank you. And fortunately, he remembered me, which was kind of surprising. Uh, he remembered me and uh, told him the story and thanked him and said, I appreciate it. And it was about three years later, he received uh, New Hampshire's highest civilian honor, which is called uh, the Petty Medal. And he asked that I be the presenter of it to him. And it's like it brought the whole thing full circle. And it just, uh, to me, showed what kind of guy he was and how important it was to just not always follow the rules, but do what's right about something. And he did that. He was an absolute class act. That's a fantastic story. I appreciate you sharing that. You, you talk about not following the rules. So was this something that just kept showing up again and again throughout your career? Well, um, I didn't realize it, but uh, yes, <laughs> it was only uh, it's funny uh, you bring it up because um, I felt compelled uh, a couple years ago to also reach out to a guy who'd been very helpful to me uh, early on in my career when I transitioned from being an hourly employee to being a um, uh, exempt employee, having a job where I had to wear a suit. Uh, all of a sudden. And I reached out to him just to say, again, thank you, because I felt like, geez, this is another guy who he really did me a good turn. And I didn't realize how good at the time, uh, because he advocated for me, pushed me to go in a certain direction that I wasn't that keen on going. And I thought I need, I need to say thank you. So I tracked him down. It took a while. It took a couple of months, but I tracked him down. And he started laughing uh, because there was this one episode where uh, I was going to go into this training program, but I'd be required to uh, take four months of an accounting course first. And again, I was very ambitious because I needed money. I'd gotten married, had children. I just needed money. And I didn't want to wait another four months. So... I, I argued with him a bunch of times. He never accepted it and said, no, I'm sorry. You need six hours of accounting. You only have four. So he was going on vacation for a week and I asked if I could borrow the accounting book. So he said, sure. He gave it to me. And then when he came in a week later on Monday morning, I walked in and said, Bill, I really don't think I need to take this accounting course. And he kind of shook his head and said, Dave, how many times do we have to go over this? Uh, you need to take it. That's, that's what the rule is. So I said, all right. And he said, what's different? So I handed him the book. And during the course of the week that he was gone, I had gone through the entire book, done every problem, uh, taken the answer key to show where I'd made mistakes and that I understood what my mistakes were. And I still remember he looked at me incredulous and said, when did you do this? I said, oh, well, uh, I promise you, I didn't use any work time, you know, being my, my kind of hourly uh, mentality. And he looked at me and said, well, what do you expect me to do with this? And I said, well, I mean, can't you call somebody and just tell them that 
I've already done it and I know this stuff, so there's no need for me to take the course. And again, it would have been very easy for him to just say, no, uh, you know, it's not the way it works. But instead, he called the guys at corporate and said, hey, got an unusual one for you. And they said, yep, never happened before. But tell you what, we'll send up an exam. And if he passes it, then he doesn't need to take the course. So they sent up the exam. I got a 96 and a half on it and kind of showing what big companies were like. The only feedback I got was uh, tell him to study the depreciation rules a bit more. <laughs> okay. But I managed to get a, elim eliminate uh, four months of waiting on a course by that week's worth of effort. And we were kind of laughing about it on the phone. And he said, yeah, you never did have a high tolerance for a process that didn't make sense to you. <laughs> And I thought, yeah, I guess, I guess that's right. I never really thought about it much that way. And it's one of the things that I think carried me through my career was just looking at stuff and saying, this makes sense. Or as a college buddy uh, told, reminded me recently, I had a tendency to say, this is stupid. I don't understand why we do this. This is stupid. And I think that's kind of stuck with me for a long time. Yeah, I'm sure those closest to me are probably going to be listening to this and uh, say, oh, wow, that sounds incredibly remarkable to, to, to Sean and very similar there. So it sounds like you and I are, are wired quite similar. Y you bring up a really interesting <laughs> thread, though, just about these these little nudges where people essentially end up doing the right thing, even though by the rule book it might not be the correct thing. Uh, and, and it really sparks and changes someone's career. And I've been fortunate. I've had some of those. So. For, for anyone listening, make sure you really understand what those little decisions can do for the long term for someone. But I'm yep. wa wondering about that accounting book. Did you have that plan in the back of your mind when you took it for that week? You thought, you know what, if I just go through this, ace this, they might let me through. Was that your plan? Um, I didn't think about a test. Uh, I did think about, okay, I'm going to take this book. And in the ensuing week, I'm going to do the book. So I laid it out. Uh, I took it on a Friday and I laid it out and said, okay, I'm going to do four chapters Saturday and Sunday, then two chapters a night, uh, rest of the week, then four chapters Saturday, three chapters Sunday. And I'm just going to devote myself to doing this and I'm going to do every problem and I'm not going to look at the answer key. I'm going to instead be able to look at the answer key afterwards and show where I made mistakes so that it's clear that I actually did do the work and I do understand it. I never thought about taking an exam. Uh, uh, that only kind of dawned on me as we were, as I was sitting there talking to Bill, trying to figure out what to do. So a few things that are already popping up, it seems like ambition, bravado, and work ethic. So I'm wondering when you were younger, did you have any idea what you might end up doing at some point in your life? None. In fact, um, um, my mom has always said that whatever job I was on, I tended to be uh, pretty dedicated to getting it done, whatever it was. But I would also say that by the time I ended up going back to school for the second time, up to that point, uh, kind of my teenage years up to the point I was 22, I've described myself as pretty much of a screw off. I like I said, a lot of ambition, but totally directionless. So I was kind of a screw off. And I used to go to the VF to just drink and play pool with uh, buddies. And I had no idea what I was going to do. And it, it was only when my 
I was had this hourly job at GE working a punch press at night. And I got married and my wife came home and said she was pregnant and couldn't work anymore. And I realized that uh, my paycheck was enough to get us almost to within two bucks of what we were actually spending for rent and everything else. And I had a hundred bucks in the bank. So I figured I had 50 weeks to figure out what to do. And we're living in this third floor, unheated, uninsulated apartment in New Hampshire. And I got really scared. I've never been so scared in my life as, as that time when I looked at it and said, I thought to myself, my kid's going to die because I'm a screw off. So I quit smoking cigarettes. I, uh, started exercising. I got myself back into school while I still work nights as a way of starting to create a better life for my family. And I still remember taking masking tape and taping up all the windows because the breeze used to come in and I was afraid that it was going to hurt him and he was going to die or something because I was a screw off. And man, that really galvanized me. You talk about that galvanization process and I'm wondering say we were looking at it just before you came to that realization, fast forward a year later, how different of a person did you become in that year? Oh, huge. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it's amazing what that year did to me. Uh, first of all, I got a 4-0 that year as opposed to just kind of getting by with a 3-0 or so. Most of the time I was there. Uh, I don't know if I mentioned this, but I'd been told – uh, end of my sophomore year, I was called to the assistant dean of students office and told I'd be no longer allowed to live on campus. And I asked why, what had I done? And she said, it's no one big thing. It just seems like wherever you are, there's trouble. You're just a general troublemaker is what it is. And you could tell I'm still a little bit proud of that. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure exactly what I did, but uh, I guess I'd acquired a certain reputation. And that was kind of my life. And I just didn't really think about it much beyond that. Well, that year uh, really made a difference for me. And I was really surprised because uh, before then, so the only thing I was doing was I was in school. And like everybody else, if I had a paper due on Monday, I was sitting up Sunday night, midnight, kind of trying to write that darn thing out. Well, uh, now that I had no time, I would plan the whole semester. And I would kind of lay out, okay, weekend by weekend, when would I be able to like study for a midterm? When would I have to get a paper done? And I'd find I had papers done six weeks before they were due. And I'd be walking in and I'd see some of my buddies and they'd talk about how they were up till three in the morning writing their paper. And I was thinking, geez, I've had mine done for six weeks. This is much easier. <laughs> this is a much easier way to run your life. I'm not sweating it. I didn't have to stay up till three in the morning. So it was, uh, it was a real eye-opening experience for me. And I'd say that year really put me on the course to having a career. Yeah, it certainly sounds like that. And we'll get to that in a minute. But you, you brought up your mom a few minutes ago. And a story I'd love for you to talk about is just bug-filled windshields and a lesson that your dad might have taught you during that time. Does this story resonate at all? Oh, yeah. Yeah. The um, well, both my mom and dad, uh, I've been asked many times, uh, geez, who were your leadership role models? And they always expect me to pick some CEO somewhere that was ahead of me. 
And I always say, uh, you know, my mom and dad were my leadership role models. The values that they taught me as a kid were useful for the rest of my life. And they were not what you would call formally educated. They both had uh, eighth grade educations. Um, my mom had an additional year of secretarial school so she could get a job, but she had two days of high school. My dad had six months. I was the first in my family to graduate from high school, never mind from, uh, from college. But, and there, there weren't a lot of professional role models, in fact, none that I can think of in our town. It was a little French Canadian enclave in New Hampshire textile mill uh, background. But they were terrific at instilling the right values. And I've been a big believer in this idea of how important it is for parents to instill values. And my mom used to say stuff like, uh, think for yourself all the time. My dad used to say, be a leader, not a follower. And to me, that led to a life of uh, focus on independent thinking. And I'm oftentimes said, independent thinking is a lot more rare than being smart. And there were other values, the, the one that you mentioned, I remember I was 12 years old, working in my dad's garage, and uh, it was my job to clean the restrooms and to uh, wash windshields. And this is before the days of squeegees. So you, you did it by hand with a squirt bottle. And I hated my job. I thought all I do is he pumps the gas, you know, the really good stuff getting to pump gas. And I have to wash the windshield. So I asked him about it. And he said, well, here's the way you need to think about it, Dave, is our customers can buy gas anywhere. However, they don't always get a clean windshield. If we can give them a really clean windshield that gives them a reason to come here and buy gas, and if they need a repair at some point, then they're more likely to come to me. Same thing with a clean restroom. If the restroom is really clean, it gives them a sense that this is how they're gonna treat my car. And I thought, okay, I don't like my job any better, but at least it gives me some sense for it. I also had another big learning from my uh, dad. And this one, you could tell, is still sticks with me. I don't know whether I was 12 or 14 at the time, but we were uh, just sitting on the curb because it was just one of those unbelievably, incredibly slow days. And when I say slow, it means so slow, my dad ran out of stuff for me to clean. There was nothing else left to do. So he actually let me sit down. And we were sitting there and all of a sudden this a customer comes driving in and my dad jumped up and did his normal uh, cheery greeting for a customer. And the customer just started berating him, absolutely berating him. And my dad was what I would call a, a tough guy. He was, you know, World War II, uh, wounded in the uh, South Pacific on a Navy ship. So he'd been through a lot. He was a, he was a tough guy. And I thought, oh man, uh, he's going to pop him. I can see it coming. There's no way he's going to, he's going to take this. And he just spent all his time saying, I'm sorry, I'll make it right. I'm, I'm really sorry. And he just kept apologizing. And after five or 10 minutes of this, this customer finally leaves. And my dad comes down to sit next to me. And I thought, oh man, I'm not going to say a word here because <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know what's going on here. I've never seen this before. And he just kind of looked off wistfully into space and said, 
you know, Dave, sometimes in business and in life, you just need to put your pride in your back pocket. And it just kind of stuck with me at the time. I didn't know a lot about what to read into it. But over time, I've realized how much wisdom there was in how he handled that situation and what he had to say about it. Might, have, might not have been the most sophisticated of words, but man, it was awfully true. And that has stuck with me a lot during the course of my life when there are those times when you realize don't let your ego get in the way of making the right decision. I think So you, yes, they, they were both great role models for me. Can you talk about that life lesson? You said this was when you were 12 or 14. I know there was a time when you were at GE with a meeting with Jack Welsh where you incorporated this. Can you talk about that? <laughs> yeah, it was, a, it was quite a story. And Jack actually had this in his own book, so it uh, obviously stuck with him too. And um, we'd, uh, I, I had this new job, and I was responsible for sending out what was called a strategic plan request. So we would send out all these templates, all these forms that needed to be filled in with numbers by every business, 13 businesses or so, and then sent to corporate. I had looked at the previous year and said, geez, we don't do anything with any of this stuff. I don't know why we ask them for all of it. And Jack was on a big anti-bureaucracy thing at the time. So I went to my boss and um, all my associates in the staff meeting and said, look, it's the time of year where I'm supposed to send this out, as I understand it, but I'm going to recommend we not do it. We, we shouldn't send it out because it's a bunch of work and we don't do anything with it. Well, I was voted down by everyone there and they said, no, nope, we're going to use it this year. Uh, you need to do it. You need to request it. So I said, okay, well, made my recommendation and uh, I'm done. So I send it out and it's like 50 pages of templates that people need to fill out. So fast forward a couple of months and my buddy is gone. He usually does Jack Welch's board pitches. So now uh, I have to do it in his absence. And I get this call from my uh, secretary saying, uh, Jack Welch wants to speak to you. And I thought, oh, oh, this is like 1986. And I thought, oh, okay. He must want to know how his board pitch is going. So I kind of get my thoughts together and give him a call. And I never... I you know, met him briefly here and there, but I didn't really know him. And um, he picks up the phone and says, Dave, is it true we asked the medical systems business for what ROI will be in the ultrasound business in 1989? And I'm just standing there on the phone thinking, what the hell is this? Where, where is this coming from? What, what, what is he thinking? And it finally dawned on me, oh, must be associated with a strategic plan request. So I said, yes, I believe we do. And then I no sooner had those words out of my mouth that he came through the phone at me, uh, yelling, cursing, telling me to get up to his office right away with a copy of the request. He wants to see it. So I hustle back, hustle up to his office. Uh, assistant walks it in. And all of a sudden I hear this, Dave, Dave, get in here. So I walk in and He's sitting there with the head HR guy, also named Jack at the time. And he's just flipping through these pages, pissing himself off. And again, he starts just yelling and cursing at me, asking me, why would I do such a stupid thing? 
And so I'm sitting there and it's funny because I'm having a little bit of this out of body experience thinking, I can't believe I didn't even want to do this. Now I'm having to defend it. So I just stood there and kept explaining, okay, we do this It's a fin- because it's the financial expression of the strategic plan. So we have some idea of uh, what strategies are going to yield. And I'm just saying those sort of things. And he just keeps yelling. And then he turns to the HR guy and says, hey, you used to run uh, Jesco. Did you have to do this? The HR guy said, no, I, I didn't. And I said, well, actually, you did. And he said, no, I, did. I ran that business. I should know. And I said, well, it's uh, sitting in my file drawer. I can go get it if you want to see it. But yeah, you did do it. This is where I can be a little mouthy sometimes. It probably wasn't the smartest thing I ever said. <laughs> but I did say it. So Jack says, all right, you've done your job. I don't know why you did such a effing stupid thing, but um, now I'm going to do my job. And so uh, I walked out of there. I remember calling my wife at the time and saying, I think I've just been fired. I don't know how this works, but man, he was not happy. So uh, the CFO ends up getting involved and asked me for my advice. And I said, no, the stuff's all coming in tomorrow. If we call all these businesses and cancel it now, it'll, they'll think we're even bigger idiots than Jack thinks we are. So we all agreed with that. So two months go by. And um, at the guest house that they had there, they were having this victory party because we just closed on the RCA acquisition. And I had been uh, the number two, the very junior finance guy on the acquisition team. So I was invited. I get over there and across from the room, I hear, Dave, Dave, get over here. And it's Jack. And I think I've heard all the stories. I can't believe it. He's going to fire me here at a party. So I walk over and my uh, buddy is with me and uh, walk over and Jack looks at me and says, Dave, I got to tell you, I was never so pissed at anybody since I'd been in plastics. And again, I, I can be a little mouthy. And I looked at him and said, well, I really appreciated you sharing it with me. <laughs> and he started laughing and I thought, oh, okay. And then my buddy, we talked for a little bit. And then my buddy looked at him and said, you know, Jack, uh, Dave never wanted to send out the request. He actually recommended that we not send out the request and we all voted him down. And I still remember this kind of look of astonishment on his face. And he turned to me and he took the inside of his fist and pointed it to his side and said, wow, so you just took the knife for those guys? I said, well, I didn't really look at it as uh, taking the knife. It's just, you don't throw in your buddies on something like it. It's not like it was anything illegal or anything. And he just kept shaking his head and saying, wow, God, wow, that's, you know, that's really something. So we walk away, my buddy and I, and I turned to him and said, well, I, you know, I got to tell you, I really appreciate you bringing that up. Thanks. He was very funny. He said, well, just so you know, if he hadn't been in a good mood, I'd have never brought it up. (laughs) (laughs) So we just kind of laughed and I said, well, thanks anyway. So we get to the end of the night and the CFO pulls me aside and says, I'd like to talk to you. So we go out and sit outside on a curb on on a bench. And he says, you have no idea how much good you've done yourself with this incident. I said, well, I sure am hard pressed to understand how, because none of it has felt very good up to this point. And he said, nope, uh, the way you handled yourself in his office, uh, 
impressed Jack to begin with because he said he has made vice presidents cry based on the way he was treating you. And you just kind of stood your ground, explained things, stayed very respectful. And he admired that. And then when he found out tonight that you hadn't wanted to do it in the first place, but you wouldn't throw in your buddies, uh, you have no idea how much good you've caused yourself. I said, oh, okay, well, can't wait to see what happens. Well, what happened was a level structure was a big thing at the time. So if you got a one level jump, you were doing well. If you got a two level jump, you were on fire. You were somebody to keep an eye on. Well, all of a sudden, Jack had me interviewing for jobs that were three and four levels above where I was. I ended up landing one of them, a three-level jump that uh, clearly was a, a big mo um, accelerator to my career because all of a sudden I was very visible and in a big job. And when I did well there, well, it kept leading to other good things. So a long story, but it was uh, certainly a turning point in my career. No, I, I absolutely love these stories, and it's an incredible, valuable lesson for anyone listening. I love, too, how you're able to, to take these jumps and, and take on roles that might stretch you a bit. So I'd love to go to 2002 when you took on the job as Honeywell because they were in almost dire straits at the time. So I would just love to know, day one, you become CEO of Honeywell. What's that like? Uh, well, day one is exciting because all of a sudden you've got this – a uh, big new job and uh, uh, everybody's talking about you. And uh, I mean, it, it's pretty exciting. As you start to get into day two and day three, when you start to realize how you're perceived and what the reality of things might be, it starts to get a little different. And uh, I like to say as bad as Honeywell looked from the outside, it was even worse from the inside. And I didn't realize that at the time, but there were several dynamics working. The first one was, even though I was CEO of the company, I was not allowed to see the books for the first four and a half months until I became chairman. And even when I would ask one of the finance guys, how's the quarter going? They would say, we've been instructed not to answer any of those questions from you. Okay, well, uh, you know, it's just a matter of a few months. I can wait. Well, you end up finding out uh, when you are able to see the books all of a sudden, man, we are in trouble. We've got a lot of bad business practices, unhealthy accounting practices, huge liabilities in pension, asbestos, environmental, none of which have been addressed or discussed in any way or recognized. And I was having to deal externally with this thought expressed by one reporter on TV and certainly told to me by a number of investors, uh, we're not sure this company can be turned around. And if it can, uh, we don't think this is the guy who can do it because he didn't make it to the first tier in the GE succession race. And he wasn't even the first choice to run Honeywell. So it was, and that, both of which were true, by the way. So it was a pretty miserable beginning because it was not a good start. I had to take my numbers down twice in the space of six weeks. So I looked like I didn't know what I was doing. And quite honestly, I didn't because I had no idea the extent of the problems I was having to deal with. And it was not the most auspicious of starts. I, I'd love to know then, because you also had to handle extreme adversity in 2008. And, and coming out of that, I think 
you made 2,500 millionaires out of GE employees during that time. So you seem to be someone- Honeywell Honeywell employees. Sorry, yes, (laughs) Honeywell employees. (laughs) (laughs) You seem to be able to handle uncertainty in very difficult times. So what is it about you that during those times you can get those around you to then lead through and come out better at the other side? Huh. Well, um, I guess I'm kind of uh, bragging a bit now, but I, I do think my judgment is pretty good. And I've often said there were three essential principles for leadership. The first is the ability to mobilize a large group of people. And it's the most visible. It's the one that people like to relate to. They like a great speech, et cetera. But I also say that's only about 5% of the job. And if you can give a great speech and motivate people, it doesn't mean you're a great leader. It means you're a great orator. There's a big difference between those two. So there's a number of ways to mobilize uh, a group of people. The second big one, though, uh, and where I think uh, makes a difference is you got to have good judgment. You got to be able to pick the right direction. If you mobilize everybody and then you spend 40 years wandering in the desert, you're not a great leader. You're, you've got them working down the wrong path. And that's a significant problem for an organization. And I think that's one of the areas that I do relatively well in. Then the third principle I say leadership is, okay, you've mobilized them. You've picked the right direction. Now, can you get them all moving step by step in that direction? And that's also difficult because there's a tendency for leaders to think, well, you know, I hire good people and delegate. Well, that kind of ignores how large organizations actually work because you run into this big difference between compliance with words and compliance with intent. There's a big difference between those two and organizations become very adept at kind of showing compliance. Yeah, we're doing it, but they aren't really doing it. And that's why I spent five, 600 hours a year on planes, just traveling around the world, visiting customers, employees, plants, et cetera, just to kind of find out, are we moving in that direction? So I think I had that kind of capability recognized in the staff that was around me when we went into 2008. And when it came to making decisions, they knew that on all big stuff, I would really do a lot to try to get all the facts and opinions out on the table to make sure that we really understood the problem we were dealing with and were we making the right decision? Because I was always much more focused on, am I making a good decision than I was with, okay, was I right? And the way I would describe it is at every meeting, I wanted to be right at the end of the meeting, not at the beginning of the meeting. And there's a big difference there in terms of how you run your discussions to make sure you're getting all the facts and opinions that people don't know exactly where you're coming from, from the beginning, so that you really do engage everybody and say, get the full color, whatever it is that you're dealing with. And the way I like to describe it is you're trying to build a mosaic. It's not as pretty as a painting, It's more like you're trying to fit in all these pieces to figure out, okay, what's the right decision here? And 
I think I had a, I built up some credibility with them by then that um, I would do that. And we did. And as you know, we came out of the, the, the recession just gangbusters. There, there's a million different directions I, I, I would want to go right now. This is almost like a real life uh, MBA course, even though I know you don't have an MBA, <laughs> which disproves the, the necessity of those, of course. Y- you mentioned good judgment, and that's one of your, we'll call them a superhuman skills. How you <laughs> You're very kind there. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm wondering, though, were there certain life experiences or were there something just in you from day one that just allowed you to be a better judge? Well, um, I guess what I'm going to do is go back to this point earlier about independent thinking. And as I'll, as you heard me say, uh, independent thinking is a lot more rare than being smart. There's plenty of smart people who do very well in school, go very, go to very good schools. But what they end up being able to do is think like the herd in a very erudite way. And they're able to explain it. Uh, They're able to basically convey what the herd is thinking as if it's their own thoughts. But they don't really think for themselves and say, okay, analytically, does this really make sense? Or is there a different way to think about this? And I think just because of the fact that I was encouraged to think that way, my whole family was uh, from the time we were kids, and I don't know, maybe there's, uh, there's nature and nurture. So maybe there was something in me that caused me to think that way from the beginning. Uh, if you spend most of your time, instead of just reading stuff in the paper and saying, okay, well, this is true, but thinking about it and saying, okay, do I really believe this? Do I really think this is true? And if not, why not? Or looking at decisions other people have made and saying, is that a good decision, a bad decision? Why, why not? Well, over time, you really build that I think that same capability in your in yourself and tried to do that with my own two sons to, to do the same thing. And I'd like to say that I think they're both very good independent thinkers for the for the same reason. You mentioned independent thinking, and I know you also had a practice uh, I've heard you describe as free thinking and just kind of creating the space necessary for you to be able to step back and really think through business at a higher level. When and why did you start incorporating this? Uh, yeah, it's funny because it, it does, it, it did make a big difference for us. And, uh, there's a phrase I use that, uh, it's very easy for people to become a victim of their calendar and stuff just gets scheduled. You do it, it gets scheduled willy nilly. And you just kind of go through the day feeling very busy, very productive because you've done meeting after meeting. But did you really focus on the stuff that was important? And I've always been struck by Donald Rumsfeld, love him or hate him, had this great line that said, uh, beware of letting the urgent get in the way of the important. And when I first got to Honeywell, I thought, okay, um, I think I was 49 years old at the time. said, with any luck, if I do well, I'll be here for 10 or 15 years. Uh, how do I make sure I stay fresh? Because up to that point, if you're rising up in a large company, you automatically stay fresh because every two or three years you have a new job and you got to look at everything brand new and think about it again. 
And I was really afraid that I'd get to that third or fourth year and kind of just run out of ideas. I'd just be doing the same stuff that I always had. So I set up uh, this thing that I called X days. And I would, when we were laying out the next year's calendar, I'd put, take two or three days each month and just put an X through it and tell my assistant, uh, no meetings scheduled for those days. If you've got to have 10 one hour meetings the day before, fine, but I want to have a day to do what I want to do. And so we'll say two to three days. It might only turn into one or two as you went through the course of the year because I want it, uh, it does, stuff just pops up. But it would leave one or two days a month where I could do a surprise visit to a plant. I could make a decide I wanted to visit certain customers, uh, or I could just sit and think. And I'd make a point of taking at least two or three of those days every year to just sit and think with this little blue notebook that I had and just kind of free think about the company. And I might gather some material ahead of time to kind of prompt thinking, but I would just kind of sit there and let my mind free associate. And I'd say, okay, let's spend some time thinking about people. Do I have the right people? Do, am I motivating them the right way? Am I compensating them right? Then businesses, which ones do I think really stand a chance at being big long-term, which, which don't? Uh, macro trends, what's going on out there? Am I a part of them the way I want to be? Do I have the right organizations built up for where it is we want to go? And I would just kind of think about stuff. And a lot of interesting things came out of that. The, our focus on the Honeywell operating system, functional transformation, uh, how we went about globalization, the uh, pipeline that I felt I needed to build, how was I going to generate better short-term results while at the same time I could invest for the long-term. A lot of stuff came out of that. It was uh, not something I was predisposed to doing because uh, I tend to be pretty activity-based. You don't want to be doing something or even better doing two things at the same time. But uh, it ended up being really important because it forced me to just think, sit there and think about what was important. What are the chances you still have any of those little blue notebooks? Oh, God, you know, it's funny. I've been asked that before. And, uh, you know, while you're doing it, you never think about how critical it is. So I'd say two-thirds of them I kind of threw away as part of my normal throw-stuff-away uh, process. I do have some, but most of them are gone. Gotcha. I I'm really intrigued. It almost seems like you had a great breadth of operating principles and frameworks. Is this something you, you've thought about or you just kind of accumulated these throughout the years? Accumulated them throughout the years. And I mean, there'd be various times that things would just really stick with me. Like uh, Michael Porter's books on com uh, competitive advantage. I remember reading those and thinking, wow, okay, this is big. This is important to think about. And then when I'd been in businesses that were in a good industry versus they were not, it really came home to me. And it was like the difference between running the silicones business at GE and running the appliance business. Man, being a, in a good industry made all the difference in the world. So I focused on that one uh, 
I came to Honeywell. I always had a tendency, getting back to the independent thinking point, to uh, when I'd read stuff in the newspaper or I'd see somebody else doing something at GE while I was growing up there, I would tend to think about it and say, okay, do I think that's a good decision or a bad decision? And do I understand why they're doing it? And I had a tendency to, I had a good memory. I'd kind of see how things worked out in the end and say, okay, that was a good idea or a bad idea. And I kind of put all that stuff together, starting at uh, Honeywell. And that's why we had the five initiatives that we did, growth, productivity, cash, people, and our enablers. But it also allowed me to be able to, I'd say, change things as I went along and add new things. So I guess I'd have to go back to that independent thinking. Yeah, it sounds like you're pulling from multiple sources here, both books, other newspaper articles you're reading, and, and hearing other people to create that mosaic you talked about earlier. Yep, that's correct. I'd love to hear about just kind of any any doubts or questioning your, your own beliefs here when you're taking on some of these difficult challenges. Oh, absolutely. Uh, in fact, I'd say uh, leaders being absolutely sure of their decision is kind of a classic mistake. And the way I've described, this is the difference between, well, let me back up. Uh, the way I've described it is in terms of what the organization sees, they have to be absolutely confident that the leader is absolutely confident in their decision because organizations cannot handle ambiguity. However, as a leader, you should always be looking over your shoulder to say, was I right? And you need to be looking for falsification bias instead of confirmation bias. Because we all have a tendency as humans, once we've made a decision, everything you see after that goes, oh yeah, 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 that supports the decision I made. And it's one of the reasons that I got out into the field as much as I did to see customers, employees, clients, to get a sense for, okay, is my decision a good one? Are things actually happening the way I think they're happening or the way I want them to happen, the way I'm being told that they're happening? So I was always searching for that falsification bias. And I would say I was good and bad at it. And in the book, I use the example of the Honeywell operating system where I would go out there and it absolutely was working. And I was able to see that and yeah, okay, this was a, this was a good decision. Uh, just the opposite happened on implementation of Six Sigma, which I had done just like I'd seen done at GE while I was there. I didn't like the way it was done at GE, but then I went and did the same darn thing at Honeywell and I ignored all the signs that it wasn't working the way I thought it was. And it took 10 years before I realized how poorly it was being implemented and had to do a revamp of it to start to finally get the results that I'd been looking for. So you have to be doing it as a leader. You have to be looking for that falsification bias, but recognize that even though you're looking for it, you may still miss it just because of your that human tendency for all of us to have to say it's working. Yeah, one thing I'm always working on is uncovering my blind spots and weaknesses. And you mentioned the importance of instilling confidence in everyone who's underneath you. So then you as a leader, 
how do you really poke holes in your own thinking? Is it just you spending time alone or do you have people outside the organization to question your assumptions? Well, I'd say it's uh, both of those. And I'd add a third one and say it's uh, your own staff and the other people in your organization. And this is where I would get to uh, understanding yourself and really thinking about how do you run a meeting? And when I mean understanding yourself, I'm, uh, I've been, I used to get asked, I, I conduct two or three leadership sessions a, a month with uh, various leadership classes that would come to headquarters. And I'd often be asked, okay, what does it take to get ahead? And I'd say, well, the first one is performance and visibility. Somebody's got to see it. But I'd say, in terms of yourself, the first one is you got to be able to get results and you can all do that. Otherwise you wouldn't be here. The second one is you need to be self-aware and a learner. And getting back to your point, you need to be aware of what are the things that are really issues for you when it comes to being a good leader and being able to make good decisions. And that's one that took me time to really learn about myself. And I tell, I used to tell every leadership class, look, you're going to get a 360. You got a 360 coming in here. So everybody's had a chance to opine on you. You're going to look at all the good stuff and say, absolutely. They, they really do understand me. Then you're going to look at all the negative stuff and you're generally going to have one or two reactions. One, they clearly don't understand what it is I'm trying to get done. Or two, I know who the son of a bitch is who said that. And I said, both of those are wrong. I said, now here's the tough part. Uh, take all those issues and create a four block. Good advice, bad advice. I take the advice, I reject the advice. I said, not everything they say as an issue in your 360 is right. So you have to figure out what are those negative things they said that are true and it's good advice. And you got to be able to reject all those things that are not true. It's really not good advice. So you truly focus on what are those things that are issues. And then you yourself have to figure out what those things are and what are you going to do about them? There's no amount of coaching that's ever going to figure that out. You're going to have to figure it out yourself. And it's painful, but if you don't do it, you're not going to get as far as your capabilities may be able to take you. And then I'd go through my own and I'd say, yeah, I've had to go through the same process. It's painful. And I'd say there are two things that I have as issues. One, I can be defensive. Two, I'm decisive. Taking the easier one first, uh, being decisive, most people would say, well, that's a great thing in a leader. You want a decisive leader. And I'd say, well, you know, yes and no. If you're making a bunch of small decisions, yeah, being decisive is good. You move on with life. If you're making big decisions with big irreversible consequences, you want to take your time. You want to make sure you actually wallow in stuff, agonize over it, really think about it, and don't make the decision until you have to. Because if you're wrong, the consequences are dire. I said, okay, so that's one that I've had to control myself and change the way I do things and make sure that I listen to people around me who might have different views on things. So the second one, being defensive, 
it took me a long time to learn this one. And I was told in my first appraisal that I could be defensive when I was like 24 years old. What was my reaction? No, I'm not. Not recognizing the irony in that. And I did over time and came up with different words to say, no, I'm not. But it was essentially the same thing. And said I was uh, almost 40 years old before I was in a meeting with a bunch of my peers. And uh, one of the guys said something about my organization. I responded and he said, geez, Dave, don't be so defensive. And I thought this was a chance to finally dispel this bad impression that I could be defensive. So I turned to one of my buddies, said, hey, uh, you know, geez, do you think I'm defensive? And he, being a nice guy, said, no, Dave, I wouldn't say you're defensive. But, you know, I would say that if we say something negative about your organization and we're not 100% correct, you will rip our lips off. (laughs) 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 Well, as you might imagine, it's 25 years later. That still (laughs) sticks with me. And I thought, wow, maybe I do need to think about this. And I ended up having to train myself to start to divorce my kind of emotional reaction to from objectively what was being said so that I could truly address and determine if something was an issue or not. And if I hadn't addressed that, I do think it would have been a problem over time. And it takes time. You're not as good at it in the beginning as you are at the end. I still have that tendency. It's emotional. So you're never going to get rid of it. But I think I've done a pretty good job of being able to be able to divorce the two and think about, okay, objectively, what's being said here? And do I agree with it or not? Dave, just so you know, I'm absolutely loving this. This is like a crash course in in personal growth. So so thanks for sharing all this. (laughs) You seem to be a very clear thinker. And you brought up something a minute ago about making those big, irreversible decisions. And I would love if you could just even go a little bit deeper, just even put yourself in the same state if you're making one of those irreversible decisions. You mentioned you kind of think it through and mull over it. Is there anything specific during the days of you mulling over that you do that you think could help? Um, yeah. Uh, I guess two things. Uh, the first one, uh, and again, this is uh, having to know myself, Uh, how I ran meetings uh, became very different. And I would make a point if we were dealing with a big issue of not letting people what my predispositions were about what a right decision might be. Even though I'd have them, I can't help it. Like I said, I'm the decisive type, so I have a view. Uh, I would not let people know what that was so that you wouldn't immediately get the third, a third, a third, we're against use for you, don't care, just make a decision. And instead, I wanted everybody thinking. And I'd make a point of drawing everybody out, asking every single person around the table, introvert or extrovert, uh, what they thought. And at the end, I would start with the most junior person in the room and ask them, what do you think I ought to do? And when you first start doing it, there's just this look of panic that comes across their face. And their first reaction is to look at their boss, whose first reaction is to jump in and answer for them. And I would always say, no, 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 I'll get to you. I want to know what this person thinks. And I'd go around the whole table, most junior to most senior. And then when I'd get to the end, I'd say, okay, here's the decision I've made. 
here's why, uh, so that people with whom I disagreed would understand I did listen, I just happened to disagree. If it was a big decision, and we'll say that decision had to be made on Friday, I would have that meeting on Tuesday. And I'd say, okay, here's what I'm thinking. This is what I think I've heard. Uh, this is a preliminary decision because on Friday, we're gonna get together again and we're gonna go through the whole thing beginning to end uh, with whatever additional work I'd ask people uh, to do. And we're gonna go through the whole thing again. So I'd get everybody together on Friday and they would think, I can't believe we're doing this again. We just went through this three days ago. But I would force everybody, including myself, to go through it all again, re-examining every single question, every single assumption to say, are we making the right decision here? And as a result, and sometimes it would change, oftentimes it would not, but it was a way of making sure that for really consequential decisions, I had devoted the time and effort uh, and introspection required to make sure that we made a good decision. Once again, some incredible, valuable advice. All, with all of this, though, I'm wondering, what skill or mindset of yours do you just find the most difficult to transfer to even the most talented members of your team? Huh. Um, I, I would still go back to, it's going to sound redundant maybe, but that ability to think independently. Uh, especially in larger organizations where people are used to having somebody above them. Uh, it's very easy to start to just defer to whatever the leader wants and to really not think things through for yourself or to say, okay, this must be true. I'm reading a lot about it, whether it's a new fad, a new trend, whatever it is, to really kind of think independently about stuff. And I mean, to give you an example, we had when oil was at a hundred bucks and people were talking about all the press you'd read was that it's going to go up and up. It'll be never go below a hundred for the rest of the years. Uh, I had a number of my folks coming to me for re regarding investments and acquisitions in oil and gas. And they'd read all this stuff. You get pumped up by all the stuff you're reading and what people are saying. And I can remember at the time saying, well, okay, I know I read the same stuff, but okay, three years from now, do we think there's a chance that it's at 50 instead of at 150? And they would say, yeah. And I'd say, okay, well, if there's a chance of it being at 50, what happens to us if we buy now when it's at 100? And the answer, of course, was, it sucks. It's bad. <laughs> you don't want to be there. And I made the decision then that, okay, I can't be sure it's not going to 150, but I am confident that there's a chance it'll go to 50. So this is not one I want to be a part of. Well, it ended up being a very good decision, obviously, given what's happened ever since that time. Not everybody else made those decisions that way. But that just ability to think independently and think about what can go wrong. That guy, it's probably another good, uh, good one to, to make is uh, once a decision is, starts uh, in process, uh, there's a tendency to 
kind of ignore all the things that could go wrong. And whether it was an acquisition or any other big decision we want to make, I used to spend a lot of time on, well, what happens if we're wrong? And I got a lot of this from, uh, I, I would say, a good leg up on this one with uh, the book an In an Uncertain World by uh, Bob Rubin, which I thought was terrific because he kept making the point about you make a decision, uh, what you're trying to do is maximize the probability that decision is correct. It's not 100%. So you need to think about what if it's wrong? So I used to spend a lot of time thinking about, okay, what if I'm wrong? Everything may look like it's right, but what if it's wrong? And as a, I'd heard once, I thought it was great, is there may only be a 10% chance you're wrong, but if that happens, there's a 100% chance of getting wet. You really need to think about, okay, uh, am I putting myself in a position where I'm really going to get crushed if I'm wrong here? And I think that was another important uh, dynamic that uh, we introduced and that I tried to follow. Who do you admire most in terms of being a fantastic independent thinker? I, I'm sorry, who, who do I admire as? In terms of being an independent thinker, are, are there people you've worked with or just other leaders you've come across that are great independent thinkers as well? Oh, sure. Uh, uh, definitely. I mean, there's some very uh, successful CEOs out there. You look at guys like uh, uh, Mark Benioff and uh, Indra Nooyi, Bob Iger. Uh, Hank Paulson, I mean, all people who have endorsed uh, uh, the book, Jim Cramer, uh, very good uh, independent thinkers. Bob Rubin is a guy that I've always admired that way, uh, being able to take in a lot of independent, different input and recognizing that very seldom is something 100% correct or 100% incorrect, but probably somewhere in between. And so, yeah, there's a there's a number of good independent thinkers out there. Excellent. No, I know just the listeners love doing a little extra research, and, and I know many of them gave great plugs for the book, and the book is Winning Now, Winning Later. And if anyone's listening and is not obsessed with your thinking process and, and your ability to lead an organization, I can't imagine they wouldn't want to read this. But something that really stood out for me in your book is just the dual balance between winning in the short term, especially when you're reporting to investors, while also investing in the long term. And I would love to just see how you analyze that and how you make decisions on both short-term gains while also investing in the long-term. Okay, well, there's a lot to talk about there, so I'll do my best to, <laughs> best to keep it uh, pithy. Uh, I'd say the first thing is, uh, starting uh, probably 30 years ago now, uh, I became struck by this idea that success is not about achieving one thing. It's about achieving two seemingly conflicting things at the same time. And there's a number of examples that I'll use is, uh, do you want low inventory or do you want great customer delivery? Do you want high prices and margin rates or do you want high volumes? Do you want people closest to the action empowered to make quick decisions, or do you want good control so nothing bad happens? In every case, you want both. The same is true 
when it comes to, do you want good short-term results or do you want good long-term results? And everything I've read so far in the press kind of makes it sound like those two are mutually exclusive. You have to be one or the other, and we do too much short-term, we need to be long-term focused. And that'll be just as much a mistake as being too short-term focused. You have to figure out how to do both because you need to be doing the seed planting to have the long-term, because uh, if you don't, the long-term becomes the short-term and then you're stuck because you run out of gas. Uh, but you also need short-term results because it's a validation of, are you on the right long-term path? So you have to figure out how to do both. Um, the way we did it was first, you have to talk about it. So people need to be aware of it. But then secondly, everyone needs to see you walk the talk. If you talk about how important uh, globalization is, but they don't see you adding resources into other countries, or you talk about how important new products are, but your spending on R&D is the same as it was three years ago. If they see you talk about deploring short-term practices like um, accounting changes to book some non-cash income so you make the quarter or loading distributors at the end of the quarter so you can make a number, then they look at it and go, oh, okay, this is not real. So not only do you have to talk about it, you got to make sure you walk the talk and it starts with the mindset of the leader. The leader has to really believe it and has to say, I'm going to do it. And I think most anybody that was associated with me during my time at Honeywell would say, every time I was ever confronted with, hey, boss, if I'm going to make the quarter, then you need to let me do whatever. I would always say, no, I'd rather you miss it than get there the wrong way. And in general, we, uh, because of how conservatively I would plan, I always had a way of being able to make it up elsewhere. But as a result of that, over time, people learn, no, he is not going to tolerate uh, that. And you really do have to walk the talk. The investment has to be there. It has to be visible in people and uh, uh, dollars and everybody needs to see it. But they also need to see that those short-term practices he deplores are not occurring in this organization. It's not how we do business. Wow. Once again, just an unbelievable display, both of knowledge, of experience, just just all culminating there in that answer. So I, I know I oh, threw, a, <laughs> threw a big one at you and Jesus, you were just able to handle it so well. <laughs> No, and well, I, I, yeah, no, and that's an, another reason I, I enjoyed the book so much. Winning now, winning later, and there's just so much wisdom, experience, uh, and unbelievable takeaways. Not only for the leader of a huge corporation, but also for a young entrepreneur, someone who who's thinking about a startup environment, or anyone even or, working in an organization. So I'm really appreciative of you taking the time writing the book and then sharing some of the lessons. Uh, I know we're short on time here. I just have two quick ones. You, yeah. you, you do such a good job thinking about being a lifelong learner and then balancing the short term with the long term. So for you, just today personally, what, what are you doing just to kind of view the next few years out so you're happy about your own progress? Oh, um, I'm constantly working on uh, new things. So you probably saw uh, writing this book was quite an experience, as you might imagine, because I'd never done that before. So my curiosity was piqued about how do I do this? Because I always maintain that 
uh, most business books would make great pamphlets. It's 10 pages a concept, 250 pages of stories that say the same thing. And it's why you can read business books in 30 minutes. And I wanted to do something different. I wanted something where every page or at least every other page, there would be something that would cause someone to say, oh, wow, I never thought about something that way. Or maybe I need to change what I'm doing. And I really wanted something that 20 years from now would, would still be useful. So that was certainly that whole thing was a learning experience. Uh, the second one is uh, I did a SPAC, a special purpose acquisition company with uh, Goldman Sachs. And we merged with a company called Vertiv, a data center products uh, company that is uh, doing great and is going to do uh, even better. And as you might imagine, that engages me significantly. And I'd have to say I'm also working on other things that I don't want to go into right now that'll continue to push me and cause me to have to think about things. But I think both being mentally and physically engaged is really important regardless of your age. So I intend to continue like that. That's just incredibly inspiring. And, and you talk about the book. And one of the things that I always judge books on is how often I pause and have to reflect on something. And so I'm appreciative when you have an author with the experience who's able to do that. So thanks for that. Final one, if you're able to sit down, spend an inter, uh, evening interviewing anyone, dead or alive, but not a family member or a friend, who would it be? Hmm. You know, I, <clears throat> I'd probably say George Washington. Hmm. I've just been fascinated with his leadership capability and the mistakes he made, the learnings he had. And our country could be in a very different place today if he hadn't expressed the kind of leadership he did, including walking away when he did in order to make a point. And the politics he had to deal with, the lack of confidence in his leadership when he was the general of the army, uh, how he had to deal with the Continental Congress. He had a lot of things he had to deal with. The defeats like at the Battle of Brooklyn. Uh, I've, I've just been really amazed and impressed with his leadership capability and what he did for the country. Dave, I think we're going to need to grab a few cigars and do a round two at this point uh, because <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm not kidding. I, I really value this conversation. This has been incredibly insightful for me. I know the listeners will get a lot out of it. We'll, we'll of course, have the, the book Winning Now, Winning Later linked up in the show notes. Anywhere else you want the listeners staying connected with you? Uh, well, I'm on LinkedIn. So for the first time in my life, I'm actually on social media. I've avoided it up to this point, <laughs> but I am on LinkedIn. Great. We'll have all that linked up. But once again, Dave, I cannot thank you enough. This has been tremendously insightful and helpful. So thank you so much for joining us on What Got You There. It was a pleasure. And uh, uh, thank you for all the questions. And uh, you're a good interviewer. You made it interesting. You guys made it to the end of another episode of What Got You There. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.